Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with Director of Photography Jules Brenner. Mr. Brenner has photographed Dillinger, Our Time, Cornbread Earl and Me, Helter Skelter, The Glass House, and Johnny Got His Gun. Johnny Got His Gun will be shown on Saturday, March 12, 2016 at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street. More later, on to the interview. The first question is, what does a cinematographer or director of photography do? Well, briefly, and sort of in a general way, uh, the DP, uh, or director of photography, is responsible for the camera aspect of a film's visual look. This would include composition, lighting, and movement, and also setting the main crew that would help me carry out all of my part um, and sort of making the DP uh, one of the set bosses in that area. And, of course, the what a DP does is in collaboration with the director and his vision for the film and his way of working. Could you discuss what led you to being a cinematographer? Well, I think the germ of that began around uh, age 10, when movies uh, became my greatest enjoyment, uh, and, uh, you know, really part of my life. Later, I got into still photography on a very serious level, and uh, my approach to it was uh, a matter of controlling everything within my frame. And uh, later, I realized that this was closely related to how movies are made. We're showing the movie Johnny Got His Gun, and it's based on the novel by um, the same title by Dalton Trombeau. And could you discuss when you first read the book and how it affected you? Right. I um, I believe that would have been around in the mid-50s. Uh, I've always been a reader, and uh, this book made a, a very deep and lasting impression on me. Okay, and for 30 years, Dalton Trumbo was a top Hollywood screenwriter, and at the age of 56, he was going to direct for the first time. According to my research, this would be your second feature assignment. And is on this line, how did you get the job for Johnny Got His Gun? I had uh, been working with, uh, as a cameraman, as a camera operator with cameraman Richard Moore on Winning with Paul Newman, and I was the camera operator. Shortly after that, uh, I had an opportunity to move up to DP. Uh, and when I told Richard about this move, he referred me to a very low-budget film shooting in the Philippines, which was looking for a DP. It became my first DP assignment. Uh, it is uh, on my credit list as uh, Stony. When I returned to the United States, I read about Trumbo's project in Army Archard's column in a daily variety and managed to get an interview with the producer. Uh, he then recommended me to Trumbo, but Trumbo wanted to work with a DP from his own generation, uh, so I was a little too young. Then I uh, uh, accepted a job as a second unit cameraman on Sometimes a Great Notion, another Paul Newman movie. And, uh, in fact, I drove up to Oregon to report in. And when I checked into the hotel, 
in which the cast and crew were being lodged, uh, I found a message waiting for me from Trumbo's producer, Bruce Campbell. Uh, and he told me they had uh, shot tests with their DP, and there was a personality problem, and they fired him. And would I like to, would I like to still shoot Johnny? Uh, which put me in kind of a situation. Well, I immediately uh, found uh, Richard Moore, who was responsible for me doing this job. He uh, grudgingly approved. He didn't want to lose me, but I felt that it wouldn't be too difficult to replace me as a second unit cameraman. Uh, and he understood what it would mean to me to, to do Johnny. So that allowed me to accept the offer. Needless to say, the studio wasn't pleased. But that's how it started. Could you discuss about your collaboration with Mr. Trumbo? <clears throat> At that point, I revered the man. And uh, as we started the production, I became his trainer in the technical side of filmmaking. And I have to say, his brilliance showed in how quickly... He folded in the art form of movies and uh, related to what we were doing on set to what he saw in the dailies. And he, and he learned the language and processes of turning his visions into the medium of film and working uh, with the cast and crew and give them the direction that we needed to carry it out. Dalton Trumbo was blacklisted and... Was he ever embittered that, like, it took him so long to direct? Did he ever, like, make statements that, well, I should have been doing this all along? No, actually, just the opposite. My understanding is that he never expected to direct. You know, he had been a writer, and he wasn't uh, thinking in terms of uh, directing anything. He was, uh, in the early stages, he was working with Luis Bunuel, uh, in writing the screenplay, with the idea that Bunuel would direct. But Bunuel left the project. And uh, at that time, uh, Trumbo was disappointed, uh, but I'm guessing that uh, what was going through his mind is that they had some money in place and the support of uh, Bruce Campbell as, as the producer on the project, and uh, he decided to go ahead with it as director. He sort of jumped in, you could say. Now, as far as being embittered, he may have been embittered, but not for that. Okay. Not for, you know, having to direct it. Uh, that Any embitterment would go back uh, justifiably to the blacklist, time in prison, you know. And what, what he uh, expressed uh, was more along the lines of satirical humor uh, through his writing and uh, fantasy scenes in the movie, which explains a lot of his feelings that were sort of masked behind a stylistic dialogue. Uh, it's like uh, he was giving lessons and instructions as, as his character, and his character being that uh, which he played on screen in, in the fantasy sequences. In videotaped interviews with Dalton Trumbo, he comes off as a rather flamboyant character. And How would you describe him? Well, I would say he's basically a, 
very kind person, person to person, uh, and a great family man. On the set, he could be a little demanding at times, but only in the interest of getting things right. Uh, and we <laughs> uh, we were there to do that for him, you know, make sure that he was pleased. Uh, he was the ultimate artist. He was devoted to his work, to the project, and I, and I would say to the use of the gifts that he had. Okay, and Johnny Got His Gun, the story deals with Joe Bonham and his existence in the hospital room, his memories of his past and his fantasies. And which segments of these were the most challenging to do, to film, and why? Well, at that time, the laboratories were turning uh, over to color film. It was being used more and more at that time. And they didn't have it all perfected. And um, when we saw the first dailies of of the shots and the scenes that were to be desaturated into black and white, which we had shot on color stock. I mean, this was all under discussion, how, what the best approach would be, whether to use black and white film or color and desaturate it. My preference would have been to use black and white film for some various technical reasons, but we wound up going, because it would not be easy to do that at that time, we went with color film for the black and white sequences, and they were handled in the lab to go to black and white, but the result was so bad that my job was at stake. They were looking at me as being the problem for, you know, kind of purplish results but it wasn't me it was the the laboratory it wasn't quite ready for what we were asking of them uh and so i would say that that would go down as the most challenging part of my experience on that film well I, you were having trouble i was going to add do you do you did you like working in black and white well yes in the sense that it was a sort of a triad of cinematic styles in the same movie. So that was a, a wonderful challenge. Okay. On the DVD a commentary, you stated you were trying to translate Trumbo's images into something he would feel correct. And so much of the memory story was autobiographical of Dalton's own life, such as the scene when Joe's father died. Was Mr. Trumbo satisfied with the final result? Well, the only sign of uh, any dissatisfaction over my work on the film was that lab scare. You know, I don't re recall him castigating me over anything he saw on screen after that. Okay. I, I do believe he was satisfied. Um, and uh, let me just add that when he died, his wife passed on to me the slate or clapper of the film that we used on the production and also, they, uh, you know, when the film went to Cannes, I'm pretty sure they, if they could have, they would have taken me to France, uh, where it won three awards. But they didn't have the budget to do that. On to some of your other films. You were the cinematographer of John Milius' uh, directorial debut, Dillinger. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And while watching that movie, I noticed a strong John Ford visual influence. Did Mr. Milius discuss that with you? My impressions that I got from him, John was sort of a an ultimate lover and fan and supporter of of the greats in film, in cinema. For Ford among them, of course, and and also of course John Huston, with whom he had just made Judge Roy Bean, which was his previous job. John was always passionate about his heroes, so. You know, comparing it to Ford would fit into that. It was part of his vision. You photographed the 1975 version of Helter Skelter television production, and there's a moment in that movie when Steve Railsback, who played Charles Manson, has shaved his head and comes into the courtroom, proclaims to be the devil. Did you do something to manipulate the image in that scene, and why? Uh, my visual idea for depicting Manson from that time forward was to light him so that he always had a dot of light gleaming in his eyes. His, his face might be on the dark side, but there would always be that light gleaming in his eyes, creating the menace and the fear of the madman and the controller of murderers. Uh, Railsback, I have to say, was impressed enough by what he saw to have tried to get me on his next two pictures. Helter Skelter was made in the mid-1970s, uh, just seven years after the murders. Did the production have any trouble from the Manson family? None that I was aware of. Oh, just a basic shoot, huh? Right. Okay. I mean, you know, if anything like that happened, it was I just never heard of it. Okay. You stated that that there should be an interdependence with the production designer, and when you photographed the return of the living dead, how did you and production designer William Stout work together to achieve the look of an EC comic? Well, by the time I came on to the project, Bill and Dan had drawn detailed storyboards of pretty much the entire film and its characters. There was a lot of, of thought that had already gone into it. Which was, which was great for Dan, being a first-time director. The uh, creatures and the absolutely amazing props uh, were pretty much designed and put together by Bill and played a huge part in realizing Dan's exceptional, and I have to say ingenious, script. Bill helped raise Dan's genius to a unique level in the zombie film and reflected Dan's, what I would call, unexcelled originality and scare, you know, mixed with humor to the zombie-loving audience. And the cult reaction since then surrounding the film has been amazing. You've worked with Dalton Trombone, and as I've, we've talked, and John Milius and Dan O'Banion, all writers who directed their first feature film with you as their cinematographer, what problems did you have to overcome working with the first-time director? Well, you're very perceptive to have noticed that. I, I did develop a reputation as a DP who could work with first-time directors, possibly because of those projects you've just enumerated. Uh, and, and many of them uh, got that position uh, of getting the chance to direct from having written the script. 
Uh, and I took some pride in being able to give the studios and production companies some comfort that the footage would, would be, at the very least, editable under a director who had not yet proven himself. There were many more. I mean, um, there were other film, first-time directors I worked with. Uh, well, they included um, Kirk Douglas on Posse, Lou Adler in Up in Smoke, Milton Katselis on When You Come in Back, Red Rider, Christopher Leach on Teen Wolf 2, Ernest Thompson on 1969, which, uh, by the way, starred Kiefer Sutherland, Robert Downey Jr., and Winona Ryder. It was always a, a, a pleasure to, more, more of a pleasure than a problem, to work with somebody uh, so long as they were receptive and you know, it didn't create any uh, pr problems, you know, like a competitive problem. I just did my best in getting them started with uh, a, a technical thing that they needed help with. You were the director of photography on the 1979 television version of Salem's Lot, directed by Toby Hooper of Texas Chainsaw Massacre fame. And did mm -hmm. Mr. Hooper, this was his first television film, and did Mr. Hooper ever feel he was being held back because he was working in television because his features up to that point were very much in your face? And how did he adjust working to television? Oh, I think that he was, he was thrilled to have had the chance to work with a big studio, a decent budget, and uh, have all the support that came with that, including... The, uh, the possibility of a terrific cast. You know, it was a far cry from anything like Chainsaw that he had done. I, I uh, detected no no feeling about feeling held back. You photographed an excellent television movie called The Glass House, and the credit said it was filmed entirely in a state prison. What difficulties did you have filming in an actual prison? Well, the first difficulty I had uh, was that uh, I didn't get prep time. In fact, I don't think anyone concerned with the production uh, had prep time. And normally, I would be brought onto a project about a week before filming. Well, that's on an average basis. Uh, and that would be uh, to go over the sets and the locations with the director and my key crew guys, the grip and gaffer and plan what equipment we would need and uh, all of that stuff. But on this project, the day we saw the prison was the day we began filming it. So that was making for that kind of a difficulty. But it was also a challenge. The next difficulty, if you could call it that, was with the prison population. When the cast and crew entered the prison for the first time, we go past the check stations uh, which are those little glass houses in which guards control the gates and doors. Once we got past those, we're filing into the first block, and we see prisoners watching us as we watch them. And we overhear one con saying to his buddy, well, here come the heroes, and he's not whispering. So for the week or so before we arrived we knew that a certain attitude had been developed. But it didn't last long. 
uh, when they saw that we were a serious bunch of hardworking people that they could relate to, they not only became cooperative, but extremely friendly. By the third day or so, when all those suspicions and barriers were down, we were eating together with robbers, murderers, rapists, whatever, and they were spilling their rap sheets to us. Uh, when one of our guys asked what they planned to do when they got out, for example, they couldn't stop telling us. So it was sort of an amazing transformation. But none of us forgot where we were and with whom. I had a somewhat amazing realization around the fifth or sixth day. Uh, I was in production car going home after that day's work. And when the car turned off the prison grounds and onto the highway, I suddenly became aware of a change of feeling, of lightness, uh, of uh, like a relief. And it came to me that not only had I been unknowingly tense or uneasy every minute I was working inside with all that grimness, I had been having this feeling of relief every night as we got onto that highway, but without being conscious of it. So that was part of the experience. Another difficulty was with the script. Officially, the title of the film is, the full title, is Truman Capote's The Glass House. Uh, The script had been written by Wyatt Cooper from an idea from Capote, but it was in need of further development which is why screenwriter Tracy Keenan Wynn was brought in to do a rewrite. So even as we were shooting, new pages were coming in to Tom Grice, the director, and to the actors. And all the while, we were acquiring direct knowledge of prison life and its social structure, the blocks, the con bosses, all that stuff, which were not in the script at all. And there was this one case that kind of illustrates how that worked out. There was a scene with Alan Alda and and one of the other actors. Alan Alda was a college professor convicted of manslaughter. And uh, this scene was obviously one that they did not feel was all that well written. So I I assume that they got uh, approval from the director. But in any case, they went home, which, of course, is the motel, and they spent hours that evening reworking the scene. In the morning, they were really pumped up, and they got a hold of Tom, the director, and ran the scene that they developed. Tom was delighted, and uh, we made it as they had reworked it. And this, I think, is emblematic of uh, how experiencing the reality of a penitentiary, being right there inside, increased all of our creative instincts and and I believe that the result was a prison story like no other on TV at least up to that point it certainly was an experience none of us will ever forget uh, which brings up one more part of this to add though I could go on all day TV in the early 70s had never seen anything quite like this film these were the years of the censors the censors ruled One of the storylines in The Glass House was about forced homosexual seduction, 
uh, with terrible consequences, plus drugs, plus violence, racial divisions, all that kind of stuff, very hard stuff. And we sort of knew that there could be a problem with the censors. You know, it all was part of the reality, and we went ahead with it. Uh, and it took one of the producers to go in and, and really sell it and basically make the censors back down. So in that way, we had made what we think is a breakthrough for which we were pretty proud. So may I suggest that everyone hearing this go out and grab a copy. Oh, and I can add one more thing. It's kind of interesting. Toward the end of uh, the schedule of filming, Alan Alda began speaking about his next project, a series for TV, MASH. And that was where he was going. Would it be safe to assume that The Glass House is one of your favorite projects you've worked on? Yes, I'd have to say that. Okay. I have to say that. I mean, I have several f favorites, but that's up there. That's right up there. Next question is, who is Joaquin Baratiega? Just another JB. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, it was just a nom de plume an, an alias, you know, purely temporary. Yeah. And also tell me about cinemasignals.com. Hmm. We really have done research <laughs> uh, on my activities. And by the, I, by the way, I have to say that uh, of any, all the interviews that I've had and, and uh, you know, questions that people have asked me, uh, a lot of these subjects have never come up. Uh, so you've really taken a, a, a great interest in uh, sort of the range, <laughs> well, and I appreciate that. Thank you. When I got my first computer and I learned coding languages like BASIC and HTML, I wanted a project to work on, and I created that site to review movies. My love of the medium goes deep, I guess, and I love coding and having control over the machine. So it's a combination. How I, you know, one way to express myself. You um, were the director of photography on Cornbread, Earl and Me, and yes. Dillinger, and you were also the uh, camera operator on, let's see, uh, Richard Moore. It's the one where the youth takes over America. Yes, thank Wild you, in the streets, wild in the streets. Wild, oh, wild in the streets, yeah. Yeah, and I was just wanting to ask you, those were AIP, or American International Pictures. What was it like to work for that studio? Well, it was, th those films are so unique. I, I can't, I don't really remember them, you know, that vividly because it was so long ago. But, you know, it was very exciting for me at that, that point in my career. You know, and uh, the part of the enjoyment of, of working in the industry is meeting, you know, some of the people that you've heard about uh, or have been a fan of for many years. So, you know, that, uh, they they were very unique films on their own and certainly within my experience. At that time. The final question I wanted to ask about Up in Smoke, and you mentioned that earlier, and I had read, or maybe even in an interview, where Sheik Marin and Tommy Chong would just someday show up and 
they would just improvise um, what they were going to do that day. Is that the truth about, you know, of how they would work and what difficulties would that be um, for you as the cinematographer? Well, I have to say that if they worked that way, I would not necessarily have been aware of it. Uh, I would uh, get uh, sort of the instructions for the setup from the director and, let's say, the scene in the car. I don't know. Well, I guess I, I should know the answer to that because I read the script. And if they go off script, I would be aware of the the ad-libbing aspect. And I know that the way they worked was off each other and, you know, sort of a rhythm that they had. And, uh, you know, I, I cannot remember specifically that, you know, that was the dominant way that they did it. But it was all fun. Okay. You know, they are really two very funny guys. <laughs> I would like to thank Jules Brenner for granting us the interview. Remember, come to the Downtown Public Library on Saturday, March 12, 2016 at 2 p.m. to see Johnny Got His Gun. Remember, it's free. Today's music is from Johnny Got His Gun by Jerry Fielding.